Last week we covered chapter 3, and uh, I know it's a, maybe a little bit repetitive, but it, it's good for me, and I think good for all of us to kind of go back through what did we do last time. And last time we find we're introduced to Haman. He's a descendant of Agag. He's promoted to the position right below of King Ahasuerus. He is the number two man in the Persian Empire, kind of like the prime minister. And Agag, his ancestor, was the king of the Amalekites, Amalekites. And the Amalekites attacked the Jews on their exodus from Egypt. And God was in, sat in judgment of them and that action. And out of that, he said that he was going to remove them from the earth and that he will be, God himself will be at war against them throughout history. And God, uh, and that, that attack occurred about a thousand years uh, in round numbers before the time of Esther. And about 450 years before the time of, I'm sorry, 550 years before the time of Esther, God sends Saul to wipe them out. And Saul compromises. He doesn't wipe them all out. He brings back some of their livestock that he was supposed to kill as well. And he bring back, brings back Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And so um, to correct the situation, Samuel goes and he completes the execution of Agag. So then if we go 550 years further into the time, uh, and we get to Esther in that era, and we find Haman, the Aga, Agagite, uh, and he is now in command, as we said earlier. And the king, in placing him in this position, decreed that everyone was to bow down and pay homage to Haman. Well, Mordecai, Esther's cousin, he sits at the king's gate, which means he's got some level of official capacity in the Persian Empire. And he refuses to bow down or show any homage to Haman. And of course, uh, <laughs> uh, my brain just did it again. Um, but here's, here's, here he is at the gate and his fellow gate sitters are watching this because he's not the only one there. And so they ask Mordecai, why, why are you not doing what has been commanded by the king? And he is basically non-responsive, but somewhere along the way he does tell them or uh, make it known that his refusal is because he's a Jew. Well, the fellow gate sitters can't leave that alone, so they take that to Haman, and they tell him, and it says right in the text, they want to see if this excuse is going to work. Can you just say, hey, I'm a Jew, so forget you. I'm not going to bow down. And uh, so Haman observes Mordecai's behavior, and he is filled with a mountainous rage. And, you know, you have to stop and recognize that surely Agag knows his family history and knows the conflict with the Jews, knows what happens to the one who was the king of the Amalekites, his uh, out of his own personal family and whom he is a descendant. He may also know that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. He may know that Mordecai, too, is from the tribe of Benjamin, although it doesn't seem that he knew he was a Jew. 
but he's apparently unaware that Esther has this relationship with Mordecai as a cousin and that she also is a Jew. So that's apparently unknown to Haman. Out of his rage, instead of acting quickly, he stops, slows down, and acts with great intention, not with a target of just taking Haman out, but he wants to see all of the Jews wiped out. And so he is patient. And as he continues in his position, he lets things go for about 11 months, uh, well, actually a year. And in the first month of the year following that, so he's waited from the first month to the first month, he decides or does suggest a plan to Harasaris. He said, we've got these Jews here, or these people, he doesn't name them, but he says they have different laws, not like our laws, and they don't follow the edicts that you put out. So here are these people that are living in rebellion, and it's not in your interest to let them remain, to let them stay in the kingdom, and uh, what he has an intent is that he's going to see them all put to death. And so he suggests, if it pleased the king, to destroy them, and he says, I'll pay 10,000 talents of silver to the treasury, uh, as we, if we put these Jews to death. And that 10,000 talents, we, we don't know the exact value, but that's about 375 tons of silver. So it's no small amount. And they have been going through a time of great expense in the kingdom. The treasury is probably on the low side because of two unsuccessful wars with the Greeks where... Ahasuerus was trying to uh, overcome the Greeks. The king responds positive, lives his signet ring to Haman, and they send out a decree on the first of the month. Um, on the 13th day of the 12th month, all population on one day is to join together, and all of the good subjects of Ahasuerus throughout the Persian Empire to kill all of the Jews, man, woman, and child, and take their property as bounty. And at this point, Esther's been queen about five years when this decree is issued. So the book, things happen quickly, but there's, there's about five years from between her becoming uh, queen and this time. And the chapter ends with, and Haman and the king sat down to drink. So they apparently were satisfied and pleased with their plan and ready to see things move forward. That takes us to Esther chapter 4. And uh, we're going to read this in, in smaller pieces. And so if I could get someone to help me out by reading verses 1 through 3 of Esther chapter 4. Then Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay. Um, and so when we, we look at those verses, Mordecai heard all of the things that have been done, and we're going to see as we go through this that he had 
pretty high level of detail information. So he's got some sort of a pipeline of information either through his position or through somebody he knows that's coming out of the palace there at Susa. And so as he is there, he, he's an official, he gets this information and he tears his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And in verse one, when it said he tore his clothes, what, what does that signify? Yeah. What's that? Grief, distress. Um, this was something that was pretty typical when news came down that you didn't like. When something came about or you saw or something was said that was just so contrary to everything that, about how you were living, it just would tear you up inside. And so tearing the clothes was a way of showing that great, that's like, this is a very outward great response of distress, uh, disagreement with what's happening and or anguish over what has happened. There's a couple of times uh, in our study of Genesis that we saw tearing of clothes. One occurred when the brothers came back and told the great lie to Jacob that Joseph, here's his, is this his coat? And they've covered it with blood and he sees it and he says, Joseph is surely dead and he tore his clothes. And by the way, he also dressed himself in sackcloth and mourned for many days. It was just a, a, just a terrible news. And then another time is when uh, Joseph has, Benjamin has come with the rest of the brothers back for the second time for food. And they put the king's cup at Joseph's request into Benjamin's bag. And they, of course, they're stopped on the road. They're accused of thievery. And the brothers all, no, 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 no. Whoever, if you find something that belonged to the king or to Joseph or to whatever back there, if you find something we've stolen, whoever you find it in, that person shall surely die, meaning be put to death. Well, when they find the cup in Benjamin's sack, all of the brothers tore their clothes. It was just like, oh, my goodness, this is unbelievable it's unbelievable and that terrible and so we we see that it also says he was in sackcloth and ashes and um so when when we when we see that i mean have you heard of that before in the in the bible where's what's a place you've heard of sackcloth and ashes being a response Job. Job, that's the one that everybody thinks of very quickly. At what point did Job put on sackcloth and ashes? When he had lost everything, his family and everything. Yeah, and, and he even was being covered with boils, and here he is sitting in sackcloth and ashes. And... You can start turning over and finding Jeremiah chapter 6. We're going to look at a couple of examples of sackcloth and ashes because it's instructive to what's going on here with Mordecai uh, as we look at some situations that these things have occurred in the past. In Jeremiah, uh, this chapter, chapter 6 that we're looking at, describes a cruel, overpowering army from the north that's bringing great destruction, punishment, and death. It's part of the judgment of God on the northern kingdom. And 
Jeremiah is given by God the task of going out and preaching repentance and God tells him nobody's going to listen to you but preach it anyway and so Jeremiah is out there preaching this hard hard message from God about their punishment for their sins and their rebellion and their idolatry with regard to God and I want to look at uh, verse 26 Jeremiah 6 verse 26 if someone's got that and would like to read it Anybody? O daughter of my people, put on sackcloth and roll in ashes. Make mourning as for an only son. Most bitter lamentation, for suddenly the destroyer will come upon us. So here's Jeremiah saying to them, I mean, he's essentially giving them direction. You should be in great mourning because of the words I've told you. You should be putting on sackcloth and ashes because... That is, uh, it communicates a number of things. Let's talk about the sackcloth for a minute. This is, getting, this is setting aside your normal garments that, have, that are intended to be comfortable and, and presentable and all those things. And it's putting on a coarse material that may be anything but comfortable. The most traditional sackcloth construction was black goat's hair. So that black for mourning kind of is still with us today. You know, many people would be more comfortable at black at a funeral, you know, just kind of showing that darkness uh, that goes with death. Now, they weren't always black goat's hair. Sometimes it would be camel's hair. Sometimes it would be flax or hemp. Um, and as I, as I think about that, it reminds me so much. I've been around some antique furniture and even some antique cars where the stuffing for the upholstery was horsehair. And that just would not be a pleasant thing to be weaving clothes out of. It would be itchy and it would be uncomfortable. And I don't know if that's exactly what it was. By the way, just every time I see this, I can't get this out of my head, so I'll just say it so I can mentally move on myself. My grandmother, who lived during World War II, talked constantly about their feed sack. Their, they called it sackcloth. It wasn't quite coarse like this, but in World War II, when clothing was so scarce, materials to make clothing out of, they would the feed sacks would have flowery prints and stuff on them, so that after you took the feed out and fed the animals, you could turn around and make rudimentary clothing out of it. And they were pretty proud of what they did. And of course, now it's quite collectible. But that's not what this is. This is this is this is intended to to signify discomfort and uneasiness with life and what's going on. And of course the, of course the ashes, you've got the, the remnants, it's, <laughs> I, I burnt some ground this year and then went in and mowed it uh, before it had rained and really had a good chance to settle those ashes down. But it was just breezy enough as the mower would mow, those ashes would blow back on me I would tell you if you can avoid that experience, I would. I, I wasn't trying to repent of anything, I just needed to mow the grass. But it, it was uncomfortable, and it, it just, it, it was a dirt that was fine. It got in, in my clothing, it got in the, 
and my fingernails. I mean, it just went everywhere and worked its way into me. Um, probably wasn't very bright. I should have just said it doesn't need mode that bad. But I didn't know what was going to happen. I hadn't done that before. But th this, this symbolizes desolation, ruin, death. And the sackcloth and ashes are a deep mourning. Sometimes it's great on the side of repentance. And, and sometimes that repentance is personal. But sometimes it's national. And so uh, here, is, here is Mordecai publicly out there in sackcloth and ashes. And the public part of that is saying a lot. Why do we find Mordecai, what is the events that we cause us to find Mordecai and Esther and other Jews in the land of Persia? Why are they there? Judgment. Judgment. They, as a nation, received the judgment of God that they were overpowered by a foreign nation, not even a nation better than them necessarily, but a nation that God raised up to exercise their judgment on them. And that judgment came out of their sin, out of their rebellion, out of their idolatry, out of their ignoring the direction of God and His, His Word. So there's more going on here almost certainly than just mourning and frustration and, and even a level of, of a, I don't want to say despair because I don't think they're despairing, but there, it's more than just a reaction to, probably more than just a reaction to what the edict is that has come down that shows that they have a day coming about 12 months from now when the whole nation is asked to rise up and put man, woman, and child to death. It's also, how did we get here? I think that's, you know, this is a book where you have to look beyond just the, what's said and realize the bigger picture. And we'll see more of that as we go on today. But so here he is out in mourning and the traditional symbol of repentance. There's a couple more places we need to look at. One is Daniel 9. Verses 1 through 6. Daniel 9, 1 through 6. And this is, I tried to put good dates together to put all this, but Daniel, is, this, is about, this is toward the end of Daniel's time, and I would say it's somewhere around 530 B.C., which is more than a hundred years before the time of Esther. Uh, but it's the same punishment and captivity that has been brought to bear. So let's look at, um, let me get to the, yeah, Daniel 9, 1 through 6.
petition and fasting and in sackcloth and ashes, I pray to the Lord my God in distress. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with all who love him and obey his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servant, the prophets who spoke in the name to our king, our princes and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. And it was a little bit challenging to stop at verse 6, and yet he continues uh, through verse 19 in this prayer to God confessing sin. So let's back up to the first verse and take care of a couple things here that might create questions for you. They certainly did for me. The way the New American Standard uh, lists those things, Xerxes is fine, that's, 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 but uh, in, in my version, it's because uh, it, Xerxes is the same name, but in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, and I'm going, whoa, whoa, stop. We're hundreds of years before Ahasuerus, and Ahasuerus in Esther, this is the first king of Persia named Ahasuerus. He's going to have a son who also takes the name Ahasuerus, who's put on the throne after he goes away. But uh, So who is this? And the best I can tell you is that, that Darius was the first Median king that was ruling over the Babylonian Empire, and he was the son of a person named Ahasuerus. But this Ahasuerus was not, I'm not saying he wasn't a prince or royalty in some fashion, but he certainly wasn't the king. Um, and uh, so here's Darius is made king, and what does Daniel do there in verse 2? What happens in Daniel's life? This is a big moment for Daniel as he's there in the Babylonian Empire. He's looking at Jeremiah the prophet and what Jeremiah said. Daniel was constantly reading and praying, and out of that he goes, Hey, look at this. It says at the end of a 70-year time of punishment, the Jews will be allowed to go back to Jerusalem. It won't be that Jerusalem will continue to be desolate with regard to Jews being there. And so he turns his attention to the Lord God in verse 3, and he wants to seek him by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God. Here he is in the sackcloth and ashes and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned. Who's the we there? The Jewish nation. Daniel is there in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I'm not, I don't want to say that Daniel was without sin, but what sin is recorded in the book of Daniel that he needs to be repenting of? It never says that he personally did it, but the nation itself is the one that sinned. And that's the point. 
Daniel here is identifying with his whole nation. It isn't that Daniel's saying here, there's a group of us living at this time, my buddies and I have sinned. No, this, our nation sinned against you and you righteously judged us. And he himself takes it upon himself to voice the repentance, to own the sin of his people. Even though he was probably a teenager and taken captive from Israel to serve and to be raised up as someone to be in the leadership of the kingdom, but not necessarily, we don't know what his lifestyle was in Jerusalem, but there's nowhere in the scriptures that it says, oh, here, Daniel was a great sinner before this point or at this point, or here's Daniel's sins. We don't know what they are, and I would, I would say to you, it's less Daniel's personal sin, but he's taking upon himself the sins of the nation and the responsibility that goes with that. And he's pleading with God on behalf of his nation, forgive us. Forgive us. And he, he extends it to all the peoples of the land. Verse 7, he starts with righteousness belongs to you, O Lord but to us open shame. And I want to take you to one more example. It's just too good not to do. Uh, Jonah chapter 3. By the way, we will come back to that Jan Jeremiah 6 a little later again. But J Jonah chapter 3. Um, we're going to look at verses 5 through 10. And Jonah 2 is well before uh, both Daniel and um, the time of Esther. And a matter of fact, it's probably about 760 B.C. And interestingly enough, it's a trip to Nineveh. Not the summer capital, but the capital of Persia. And, then, and Jonah, as you know the story, he doesn't much want to go there for fear that They'll repent and God won't, won't punish him. He wants to just be quiet and let God uh, be mean to him, be, be righteously just in bringing his wrath upon them. So let's look at Jonah chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. This is the reaction of the people after Jonah comes and he doesn't say repent. He just says, this is what God's going to do to you. And this is what happens. Jonah 3, 5 through 10. And the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with his sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. He issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, bird, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water, but both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. One more, 10. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. So, to me, this is fascinating. Jonah 
comes and preaches and all of the people just they're devastated they're they believed is what it says in God and so they believed that here's the message of God come to them and they don't like what's about to happen but not because they don't deserve it for they know they do so out of their repentance they put on the sackcloth they go and they sit in the ashes the king does the same thing the king calls for a fast that includes the animals and he calls for sackcloth even for the animals everything's going to be covered in sackcloth we're going to make it clear that this is something we repent from we repent from our behavior and in here um, let men God call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way so there's prayer involved but it says in verse 10 when God saw their deeds when he saw that they had turned from their wicked way and what was the turning it was the prayer the sackcloth the ashes and the fasting included in that sackcloth and ashes you can tell by context it's meant as a message not only of their own shame and reproach but in and itself it is a prayer to God it is an outward expectation expression of what's going on so going back to verse 1 I know I went quite a while into that but I think we need to understand this sackcloth and ashes is a big deal and when we look at Mordecai's response uh, he tore his clothes put on the sackcloth and ashes went into the midst of the city and wailed loudly he wasn't trying to be quiet or gentle or silent or subtle he's bitterly and loudly wailing and in verse 2 he goes as far as the king's gate because no one could enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth they if you want to go into the king's presence you had to be cleaned up presentable wearing the appropriate things <clears throat> and verse 3 tells us that in every uh, province where the command and decree of the king came there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting weeping wailing and many lay on sackcloth and ashes so Mordecai might have been the first he's the first mentioned but this is something that many Jews join him in doing so now with that let's go to Esther 4 4 through 8 who can read those verses for us Okay, so Esther's maidens and her eunuchs came and told her uh, what had uh, 
had gone on as far as with Mordecai and his uh, mourning out there and um, it may, gave her great anguish. This can't be good. This is terrible. This is, it, it upset her. And so she wants to interact with Mordecai. Well, Mordecai can't come in where she is and clearly she's pretty isolated because even though she's the queen, how does she find out? Well, she finds out through this interaction that we're going to be looking at here. She doesn't know what the problem is yet. She just knows that Mordecai's out there in sackcloth and ashes. And so she summoned Hathak. Hathak is a king, one of the king's eunuchs that he had given to, to Esther for to attend to her. So she, he has become her servant, so to speak. And so she tells him to go out to Mordecai and to learn what this was and why it was. So she's trying to find out what's going on. Something's happening here. It's got my cousin Mordecai greatly upset. He had led her through life. He had led her through the initial point of moving in to become uh, a contender to be the queen. And so he's highly respected. This has got to be a problem. And in verse 6, Hathak goes out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gate. So this is a prominent space but not in the king's gate because of the sackcloth. And in verse 7, we see that Mordecai told him everything that had happened, including the exact amount of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. That's not included in the edict, so that's where we know he's got a pretty good pipeline of information. And he also gave Hathak a copy of the text of the edict which had been issued in Susa for the destruction so that he could show it to Esther and inform her and to order her. So here's, here's Hathak. He's already taken one order from Esther. Go out and find out what's going on from Mordecai. Take these clothes so he can change up and come in. Mordecai says, no, I'm not doing that. Gives the information to Hathak and tells Hathak, go tell her to go to the king, implore his favor, and plead with him for her people. How would you like to have been Hathak? Here I am running between Mordecai and Esther. I want to serve Esther well. I'm her servant. That's my job. I want to do it well, but everywhere he goes, the other one orders him to do something. And so that puts him in the position of going back to inform Esther and to essentially tell her that Mordecai has directed you to go to the king and ask for his favor. So let's go now to Esther chapter 4. Let's read 9 through 14. Who can read that for us? You got that, Jim? Yep. So Hathcat turned and told Esther the word of Mordecai. Then Esther spoke to Hathcat and gave him the command for Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court to the king who has not been called, he was but, but one law, put all to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these thirty days. So they told Mordecai Esther's words. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace 
any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet, who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Okay. So, um, when when Hathak comes back and tells everything that Mordecai said to Esther, Esther turns right around to Hathak and says, all right, go back to Mordecai and tell him that all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that for any man or woman who comes into the king's inner court who is not summoned, he has but one law, and that is he put to be put to death unless the king holds out to him the golden scepter so that he may live. And I have not been summoned for 30 days. What's she telling Mordecai? I'm not going. Yeah, that, that's one way of saying it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing this. And 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 you and and don't you think Mordecai knew this? Because Esther says everybody knows this. You're one of the king's servants. You wouldn't go in there unless the king asked you to come. And uh, so she says this isn't this isn't going to work uh, because if I go in, there's but one law, and that is that whoever comes in be put to death unless the scepter is granted to them that they might live. And, you know, we might read that and think, well, you know, it's a 50-50 shot. But the way this is worded and the practices that were of the day, it's like to even come in without being summoned is an affront to the king's authority. You don't go barging into the king's presence unless the king wants you in the king's presence. And so you really go in under a death sentence. The king can essentially commute that death sentence if he extends the golden scepter to you, then that death sentence is set aside. But you really start with a death sentence. And, you know, Mordecai, I think she's anticipating a little bit what Mordecai might say, well, wait till he calls you. No, I haven't been called for 30 days. Don't know what that means other than the king isn't calling her in often enough that he's called in the last 30 days and so she may be indicating his interaction with her has decreased whatever don't know but she's saying you know for example I've been here for been in there for 30 days and so um, she goes he goes back Hathet goes back to Mordecai and says what King Esther Queen Esther had told him and as as Mordecai responds, gives a reply to be sent back to Esther. This is very revealing of Mordecai's view on a lot of things concerning the person of God, what's going on, what his faith is expecting, and even right down to God's sovereignty and judgment. Listen to this. Don't imagine, the words to Esther, don't imagine that you and the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. Don't think because your position, this isn't going to come and haunt you and be a part of, of what happens to you. This affects you. And he goes on to say, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Why did he say that? What did you think 
is going on in his understanding of the situation that would cause him to say this. First of all, why would he say deliverance for the Jews will arrive from another place? If you keep quiet, the Jews will still be delivered, but from a different source than you. Why did he say that? He knew God was going to save a remnant. There are multiple ways he might have known that. What's one that comes through the scriptures we've read going through Genesis? Covenant to Abraham. Covenant to Abraham. The covenant to Abraham says, we, there will be a remnant, you will be a great nation, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Has all of that occurred yet? No. Dave, you were going to add something. Mm-hmm. By his prayer, Daniel's confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, the first thing he said, who keeps covenant? Who keeps covenant, yeah. The first thing he said. Haman would have had that. Yep. And the Jews knew that. They knew that they were a chosen people, God's favorite, God's chosen people. They were not going to be put out of Jews, Jews were going to survive. Maybe not every Jew. But the Jewish nation is going to survive. And Mordecai knew it. This speaks volumes that we can apply to some of the silence of the book of Esther. Esther doesn't name God. They don't talk about specific references to other promises and covenants. But it's clear that Mordecai here is looking toward God with faith and confidence that the Jews are going to be spared utter, complete destruction in this land. And we have to keep in mind that at the time we're talking about when this will occur, there are Jews more than a century ago, we already read some of that, have been sent back, back in Daniel's time it started, sending people back to build the temple. So when we think of the land mass of Israel that was given to them as the promised land, particularly in the southern kingdom, there, there are people there, Jews. And so it isn't that those people are over there and won't be a part of this because the Medes and Persians are ruling the land that the Jews were given, including the area of Jerusalem. So when this happens, the enemies of the Jews back in Palestine are invited to go kill the Jews for profit and to put aside these folks that contend with them for this land. And so Mordecai says, we're going to be saved, but you and your father's house will perish. Why might he believe that would occur? What would Esther have to do or what would Esther not be doing if she didn't go into the king? She'll die anyway. Well, she'll die anyway, but she's going to have two strikes against her. One is she didn't identify as a Jew. She would be, at some level, setting aside her own heritage as one of the tribe of Benjamin. Who would become her adversary at that point? 
God himself. I mean, if you were timid, ashamed, I don't know what word to put on it, of being a Jew in a time when the Jews are being attacked and you're in a position of power as a Jew and you don't do what you can to honor God and protect your fellow countrymen, I think that would be a very awkward place to try to live. And the other thing that could happen is if she doesn't do what she can do when the day comes that Haman finds out, oh, she's a Jew too? Well, we killed all of them we could. Bring her along. I mean, she's, she's adding to the adversaries against her. And, and I think that Mordecai with wisdom says, you've got to face the peril of death now. Because if you don't face it now, there's going to be a different, more severe uh, situation that could lead to your death coming up down the road. And then he goes on to the next step that I think ties into this very strongly. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? Who made her queen? Yeah. God put you here for a reason. And you can't afford to set aside the probability that that reason is for this moment. Haman didn't claim or he didn't say with absolute certainty, this is the moment God put you here for. Stand up to it. But he did say, sure looks like it. Who knows but that you were not made queen just for this moment. And the person who would have made her queen for this moment certainly wasn't Ahasuerus. It would have been God through his own sovereignty dealing with the details of his plan to care for the Jews. Keep in mind, this, none of this stuff is a surprise to God. You know this. God knew this was coming. He set all of these things up very, very carefully in a detailed way. Questions, comments, thoughts so far? All right, let's read verse 15 to the end of the chapter. Here, I'll, I'll read that. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, assemble all the Jews who are found in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will also fast in the same way. And thus I will go into the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and did just as Esther had commanded him. What does Esther ask for? What? Fasting. Fasting. The word prayer didn't show up. But are they praying? Yeah, this is a way of praying to God. They're fasting. They're making it clear. This is important. I mean, they didn't quit fasting because they didn't quit eating. They didn't start fasting because they just couldn't be hungry under these circumstances. No, this is intentional. Go fast. Go deny yourself food, drink, night and day for three days. I'm going to do that. My servants with me, my maidens will do that. And we're all going to fast. They're entreating God. 
This is an extreme time of prayer, and it is a corporate time because she says, assemble all the Jews in Susa. Assemble all the Jews in Susa. This is a major corporate prayer meeting. He didn't say go tell them all. Get them all together. And for three days, night and day, we're all going to fast. And with that preparation, then I will go to the king. She's asking for the most effective thing they can do, and that's call upon God with great intensity, that her visit to the king will be blessed by him and successful. And under those conditions, she's going to go to the king, trusting God for whatever happens. If I die, I die, and that's way it will be. And so Mordecai went away and did as Esther had commanded him. And so you see this great prayer meeting set up. Don't know if any words were spoken, but certainly they were all fasting day and night. Um, catch up with my notes here. So when we look at what's happening here in the book of Esther, as is so often the case, we have to look beyond the things we might expect that aren't seen. The name of God doesn't show up. The word prayer doesn't show up. There make no references to the law of God. And yet what we see is these pages, this chapter is dripping with faith, and confidence in God himself. They see him as trustworthy, and certainly Mordecai is leading in those words, but he has expectations of promises to be kept. And this is a strong statement of faith on their part. I'm sure you have some comments. Questions, comments? Maybe not, but I thought so. I have one, but I don't know if it, I just noticed that Part the go between between Esther and Haman. Yep. Is half action. Yep. Or whatever his name is there. And then the, the second half in, in in twelve, it's they. It's an, yes, it's I saw that. Action. I was gonna mention it. And then and then yeah, so is it did you come across that? Did you, I came across it and I, and I was gonna spend some and I don't know what the plurality means there. Um, I didn't see where, and I didn't do a lot of reading of other commentaries and whatever on, on well, I did some on certain topics, but not on this part. So I, I, there may have been commentaries that mentioned that, but uh, yeah, there in verse uh, 12, and then 12 and 15, Mordecai told them, so it looks like the party that's the in-between group going back and forth grows beyond just Hathak, but picks up some, at least one more person because we've got a plurality of people. It's, it, it's clearly a, a plural pronoun. See it in 12 and 15. 
it, something that happens as I study these, I'll be going along and I'll go, hey, look at that word. Oh, I need it. And I might even write on a piece of paper. I, I need to figure that out. And then by the time I get into some other thing, I don't always make it back. Rick, I was uh, impressed with Mordecai's, like, basically understanding of the times. So mm -hmm. see Mordecai in the, in the beginning, you know, weeping and grieving for the state of Israel or the state of, uh, of the Jewish people and the possibility of, like, sin that would happen against them, the possibility of extermination, but then also, like, leveraging the connections that he has mm -hmm. with the civil government in order to bring about the best possible good. I think it's just a really good example of how, how you can operate in both worlds and that like they're not antithetical to one another. It's not it's not a you know a sacred and profane kind of relationship that we have with our civil government, but we we leverage those things for the best good of the people that the people of mm -hmm. God yep. that we have. And so it's just interesting to, to view it from that perspective. Yeah, that is that is interesting and and, and clearly he had great connections going on somewhere. Uh, another thing that I, I, I read when I was looking up the sackcloth and ashes, a lot of commentaries will go here when I was trying to study that out. They'll, they'll, they'll mention what happened here. And a couple of commentaries, I, I guess I would say I was disappointed in them because I, I just can't make myself believe this, but they said, well, he was, might have been mourning because it was his defiance of Haman that led to this situation because if he had just bowed down to Haman, none of this would be occurring. And <clears throat> I just have two quick responses to that. Number one, I don't think he thought for a second that he should have bowed down to Haman. That would have been an affront to who God is. And clearly, Mordecai is aligned with who is God. And so I think, you know, it would be almost like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, oh, I guess we should have bowed down. No. You, you do what is right, and you trust God to work these things out. Um, I, I do think that, that he was mindful of why Israel came under judgment, why there were still people dispersed, and uh, I do think he was in sackcloth and ashes for that. I think his, his tone is another interesting component, too, because he basically tells queen, the queen, you're going to die, too, if yep. you don't step up. Like, and God's yep. going to provide, you know. Uh, and so it's just interesting to view it from that perspective, too, because he's not, he's not like, here, oh, queen, your humble servant. Yeah, yeah. You know, he doesn't approach her in that way, but he just he, tells her the truth. Of he love. stays Mordecai, the older cousin, guiding her through yeah. her issues in life as, as, as they come up. Yeah, and and I just loved his faith. If you don't step up, we're gonna get, we're we're going to be <clears throat> a remnant of Jews is going to be saved out of this. This this is not going to happen. You want to play a part in it, or you want to ignore it and take your chances. Anyway, well, anything else? Well, that certainly could have been a possibility. I mean, I don't know what Mordecai might have been imagining or if he was imagining anything specific. But clearly he was um, believing that this was an opportunity for her that if she passed it by, it would be to her own demise. Were the Jews fairly aware that 
Apparently not. Uh, well, all all we have on that, and maybe they were aware because here's Mordecai going to go back and say, "Hey, let's fast for three days so Esther can go in." So I don't know. I shouldn't think that I know. The only thing I know is that it was quiet enough; it wasn't known outside the Jewish circles because Mordecai said, when she went up toward the process of becoming the queen, "Don't tell him." Don't know why he said that other than. Don't tell them. That's not part of what you're going to be revealing to them. And he and she she followed that. And clearly Haman didn't know. Um, so, yeah. That probably went back to Mordecai's understanding of the times, the government that he was a part of. Yeah, better off just leave this alone for now. Yeah. Well, let me close with a word of prayer. Father, you uh, were gracious to the people in Esther's day. We're right now still in the midst of the decree and the fear that would come from that. Lord, we can look back on it and know the rest of the story. But Lord, what courage it would have taken to live through this time. Here they are, Lord, in the middle of, of, of a, a year from now. There's going to be a, a special day just to kill all of me and my fellow countrymen. Lord, that would have been hard. Lord, let us learn from this so that when we hit our difficult days and have our times when we could be fearful, particularly as believers, Lord, remind us of Mordecai's confidence in you and even Esther's confidence in you that, well, if I die, I die, but standing up for the Lord in the ways that I can is the right thing to do. So, Lord, lead us to have these same attitudes in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.